Welcome to the Collective Leadership Podcast. This is a space for leaders to connect, collaborate, and prepare together for God's work in the world. I'm Kim Valenzuela, and I'm joined by Kelvin Walker, the Metro District Superintendent. Our guest today is a good friend and my lead pastor, Rich Velotis. Rich is the Brooklyn-born lead pastor of New Life Fellowship, a large multiracial church with more than 75 countries represented in Elmhurst, Queens. Rich holds a Master's of Divinity from Alliance Theological Seminary. He enjoys reading widely, preaching, and writing on contemplative spirituality, justice-related matters, and the art of preaching. He's been married to Rosie since 2006. They have two beautiful children, Karis and Nathan. And his first book, The Deeply Formed Life, is now available wherever books are sold. And it's the primary topic of our conversation today. We're so excited to have Rich with us. So welcome, Rich. We're so excited to have you with us. It was so fun to have you on the recent webinar that we had for racial injustice in the church as part of the Metro District Conference on Kingdom Justice and Mercy. But we wanted to follow up with that conversation, and especially in light of your new book, The Deeply Formed Life. We're excited to have you here on the Collective Leadership Podcast and talking today with with Kelvin and I. Thank you, Kim. You know, I've done a lot of podcasts over recent months. And, and most of the folks that I do podcasts with, I don't really know them. It's like a lot of the times it's the first time. So to be with two people that I love and know, it's a great joy. So look forward to a good conversation. Yeah, Rich, we've been, we, I was trying to figure this out. I've known you since 2007, hard to believe 13 years now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and uh, we've ministered together. Um, I've been ministered to by you. You taught me uh, as I've been in class where you've been the when you've been a professor. So I've, I've seen you, gotten to know you. I follow you on social media, but man, you are all over the place these days. No matter where I look, I see uh, Rich's face with a with a you know a new recording or anything. How is this all? going for you, man. Well, the really nice you know. thing is I'm doing a book tour from my bedroom, which is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and my it's wife- all over the place online. My <laughs> wife loves that because I'm like right next door. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's been great. That was the phrase that came to me yesterday, book tour from my bedroom. And so that that's made it um, very manageable, much more manageable if I was traveling extensively. That's been the gift in all of this. So, uh, you know, it is a lot. There's a lot of conversations. I found myself repeating myself over and over again uh, for different audiences. But I I think some of those things have helped me to even grow deeper in terms of my own, you know, sometimes I need to talk or write things out to understand what I think uh, and what I believe. So that's been fun, but it's been, it's been good. Uh, Lots of excitement, lots of, um, opportunities. So um, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. Um, just kind of sticking there for a minute. I, you know, just thinking about myself, I, I can do out front, but I'm much more of an introvert mm-hmm. and I would rather have just one or two, you know, deep conversations. You with doing this, there's a lot that you're expending. Mm-hmm. How are you, um, how are you replenishing these days? What does that look like? You know, because it must, 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 must be different in this season than it's been in others. Yeah. You know, in terms of replenishing, um, you guys are seeing me like this is my my spot where every interview I do here is like on this chair in my bedroom. <laughs> and this is so this is my interview chair. But it's it's also my this is my prayer chair. This is where mm. this is, you know, the room where it happens, as 
they said in Hamilton. Uh, so, th- you know, this is the place where my, lots of my replenishment comes from. So very simply, how do I find it? Uh, by cultivating rhythms of silent prayer. That has been my anchor over the many years. Uh, mm-hmm. and so the fact that I am not expending a lot of physical energy, there's lots of emotional energy going out for sure. But because it's, um, I'm not expending too much physical energy, I, I can just sit here, be with Jesus, be with scripture in books. Um, so that's been some of the ways that my soul has been replenished. And uh, being around my uh, children and with mm-hmm. Rosie, oh, you know, throughout the day has, uh, you know, it's challenges. Uh, but what a gift it is as well uh, in playing with them and hugging them multiple times a day. So my soul has been restored and replenished as well, just by proximity to my, my wife and kids. So I don't know yeah. if everyone can say that, but uh, I could say that. With <laughs> That's good. You mentioned that emotional energy. And I mean, in light of the times that we're in, right? So there's a reason why you're also home doing a book tour from your bedroom uh, regarding the pandemic. We're also in the midst of the election. We're in the midst of just heightened awareness of racial tensions. What what do you think is the critical intersection of like your book being published at this point in time? You're navigating a book tour at this point in time. So all the conversations are not only with you about your book, but also how your book is relating to these times we're in. I'm interested to hear what that emotional toll is like towards you for this point in time. Yeah, you know, um, in some ways, I don't know if this is a good thing, but there is a naivete about what's happening with me here and in an obliviousness of what's happening. And um, I'm serious. Like sometimes I'm saying things and people are saying, do you know what you're saying? And Uh and on one level I do, but another level, I don't know if I do. So I think there is an Mm -hmm. obliviousness (laughs) and I think I'm pretty (laughs) self-aware in terms of all this, but uh, the emotional toll. I mean, I have found rhythms of friendships that I pastors I meet with monthly, you know, three other pastors friends, uh, seasons of therapy mm-hmm. that, I mean, my most recent one was maybe three weeks ago and I, I was offered a gift and just pouring out my soul and helping to identify mm-hmm. places of anxiety within me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then having a, you know, Rosie who, uh, you know, we're having so many mm-hmm. wonderful conversations in a given day and she's helping to give me perspective. So, uh, in a way, uh, I don't feel like overwhelmed. I mean, I know there's a lot coming and we're in a pandemic and I just did five weeks of preaching on politics mm-hmm. which, and people from the outside were saying, wow, mm-hmm. that must have been so difficult. And yes, it was tiring, it was exhausting, but I, but I don't feel worn out. I mean, I feel like I expended a lot, but I don't feel worn out. And I, I, I don't know what the secret is. I mean, part of it is just I'm maintaining decent rhythms. I'm keeping Sabbath right. weekly. Um but still, I mean, we're we're in November, two months after the book has come out. So we'll see where we're at in a couple of months. <laughs> you said something though that that I want to go back to. You know, you said this is your this is your prayer corner, this is your prayer chair. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of um uh Dr. David Ireland. Uh, I heard him preach once, and he one of the things that he said is if you don't have a place where you regularly meet with God. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about, um, uh, he didn't use the word being formed in Christ, but, uh, uh, that's the idea that he was given. There's something about your formation mm-hmm. that you're missing. You know, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I, I don't, I don't want to just pass that by that, that, that it was something significant about you saying, 
So you're, you're meeting me in my prayer corner, basically. You know, I think there is uh, lots of connection between that sense of um, that regularity of space, regularity of rhythm. You know, I've been, as you guys know, I've been really impacted by monasticism. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've been to, there's this Trappist monastery in the Boston area. And I've been there almost, I mean, every year for maybe the past uh, eight years and praying with these monks. They get up at three o'clock in the morning. They're in bed by 830 or so. And it's interesting because they get up multiple times a day to pray and they go to the same spot. Like I I watch where they pray and I'm like, (laughs) hey, Brother Joseph is uh, over there or Father (laughs) William is in the same spot. I think there is a sense of predictability in the best sense of the word uh, that aids people in, you know, contemplating God, being with God. So I have found that level of familiarity to be helpful in terms of a meeting place with, with God. And this is, for me, this is it. You know, when I was, I used to work down uh, when I was in my late twenties or mid twenties, rather, I worked uh, in lower Manhattan and there was a church called Trinity church right there on on Mm -hmm. wall street and on Broadway. And for 30 minutes for lunch, I used to go there for 30 minutes and sit in the back of their small chapel and sit in the same seat every day for lunch for 30 minutes. And there was something, I don't know, it did something to my soul, the predictability, the, uh, the regularity of it, the rhythms. Um, it felt like home. It, be, it became like a home, that chair in the back seat of that chapel at Trinity Wall Street Church. So I think there is something to that. I, I, you know, I was thinking about um, in the beginning of the pandemic, in the beginning of the, of the lockdown, how disoriented I felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started to realize probably about week three, week four, part of the disorientation um, had, it had less to do with the, the uncertainty of what was ahead and more to do with the fact that my daily rhythm of getting in the car, mm-hmm. driving to the office, and that was the place that and and to this day, that's the if I that the, that's the place where I where I meet God and God meets me. As strange as it sounds, mm-hmm. you know that you're in the middle of traffic, mm-hmm. but that's the place, you know. Yeah. So I, I just you know, I, and I notice now that that I've been back, in, you know, driving into the office. There's I feel like ah, I'm at home again. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I, I I wanted us to pause there because I, I think it's important uh, for you know for those who are listening to to. Did not miss that. I, I, you know, there's something about the deeply formed life and having that place of meeting that's key. Mm. Otherwise, they're, they're, they're key things that we miss. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just really grateful that you said that, so we could spend some time talking mm. about that. Amen. Absolutely. I can remember specific words in which God spoke to me by remembering the place that I was in. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so often there's a connection between how we hear from God and where we're at with God. Um, and while those change and those evolve and we move or we're unsettled or we're, we're nomadic for a period of time, um, no matter what our situation is, I think finding that rhythm with God is, is ultimately what your book, first chapter, Contemplative Rhythms, mm-hmm. um, yeah. leads us towards. So I want to ask one question as we're getting into kind of formation of your book and the five values that you hold together. As I read through them, I was thinking, this is a lot. Like it's it's a lot to to take in and to absorb. Um, so can you 
Can you kind of show us how they weave together? How are the five values held interconnected? Yeah, you know, uh, first of all, for for those who are are new to this, uh, you know, the five values are, you know, contemplative rhythms, racial reconciliation, emotion, uh, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence. And it's important to note that these values come out of uh, the church that I pastor. And so we have five values. We don't we don't call them those phrases. We call them our five M's, our monastic, multiracial, emotional health, marriage to Christ, and missional. And that these values have shaped our church for many, many years. And so what we have uh, um, tried to do over the years is resist a kind of formational compartmentalization. Uh, and by formational compartmentalization, I'm talking about seeing particular aspects of discipleship as ancillary footnote specialization areas. And it's easy to see certain areas as, oh, that's for that kind of Christian or for that Mm -hmm. kind of person. Uh, Or you're talking about race, that must be because you're in an urban setting. And so that's Mm -hmm. for you folks in the urban settings, as opposed to, no, this is a... To, to be faithful to this is to be faithful to the gospel. Uh, and so the, the interconnecting of it is part of it was, it's just, uh, I think it, an inductive way of how we have discovered following Christ in our context in Queens. I don't think we got up one morning and said, all right, here are the five areas that we're going to focus on. Okay. I think in the life of our congregation over the many years, we started focusing on, uh, you know, race and focusing on uh, interiority or emotional health or contemplative rhythms or marriages or justice and mission. Uh, and so over the course of just wrestling with these, I remember the first time that we distilled these five values. It happened during the transitional point between Pete Scazzaro and myself. And as I was stepping into beginning to shape the future of the church, I realized we didn't have language to encompass all of these five things. We had it loosely. Mm-hmm. And I remember having a conversation with Pete and I said, um, I said, Pete, I think we need five that va- we have five values here. I think we need to name them. And um, I remember Pete, Pete is like, uh, I mean, he he's introduced so much of contemplative spirituality. And I remember telling him the word monastic and he was actually very afraid of using the word monastic. He was like, I don't know what, if we use the word, what are people? And I said, I think we need it. Um, we need to use mm-hmm. the word monastic, but it was during that time around 2012, about eight years ago, where okay. I thought we need, this is where we've been in the 26 years of our church. This is what we've emphasized. This is how we believe the Holy Spirit has led us in terms of areas of priorities and emphasis. Uh, now let's just make these things uh, a framework. And so it began out of our local church. But for me, the interconnection is we need a life with God. We're called to you know, a life of community, a life of interiority. How do we understand our bodies, our our mission in the world? So, but uh, it didn't come out of like study. It came out of just the progressive, slow mm-hmm. outworking of our of life in community, and mm-hmm. how we believe the Holy Spirit was leading us over a few decades. Wow. So. I loved what you said earlier that so often we're seen as like, this is compartmentalized, that each of these areas of formation are compartmentalized. And I think, I mean, even Kelvin, as you and I were talking about the book before, um, I've read and, and between Kelvin and his reading so many books on spiritual formation 
in the Alliance tradition, um, A.B. Simpson called it the deeper life with God. And none of those books have included uh, racial reconciliation as part of that formation mm-hmm. um, that, that I have read personally. And so I just, can you help us, like, why was racial reconciliation so much a formative process um, that the church went into as part of their value system and then now as part of the book? And why do you think that has been missed? More so, like, why do you think that has not been incorporated as part of our spiritual formation for, for many centuries? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's a number of reasons why. One, I think is theological in nature. And so by that, I mean uh, how people define the gospel has everything to do with whether racial reconciliation is going to be seen as a priority or as, yeah. again, an, an area of specialization for particular people who live in a particular area. If the gospel is the good news that the crucified and risen and enthroned Jesus is Lord and is making all things new, and one of the primary fruits of that newness is a new humanity. This is Ephesians 2. The the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down because of what Christ Mm -hmm. has done. If this is our fundamental understanding of the gospel, that it is not a soteriological transaction, that it is not... Mm -hmm. An, an atonement theory. You cannot reduce the gospel to an atonement theory. And I think all these atonement theories are important and we need to have conversations about them. But the gospel is more than an atonement theory. The gospel is more than a soteriological transaction. The gospel is the good news. The gospel is fundamentally about a person, uh, not even about a transaction. It's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross and in his resurrection and his enthronement. Uh, and so I think one of the reasons why this is not featured into books on spiritual formation and the deeper life is because I think we often have a, uh, uh, maybe a limited, and I, I say that humbly because there are people who I deeply respect um, mm-hmm. uh, who have not addressed it. So, but I think part of it is maybe the, the gospel that uh, some have talked about or written about has not been as robust. Uh, secondly, I think it's sociological. You know, I, I write this because I'm a pastor in, in Queens, New York City. Um, mm-hmm. for, uh, half of Queens is foreign born. 75 nations are represented in my community. 123 languages spoken in the neighborhood. And so for me, I'm faced with the reality of this. Uh, and whatever problems are in the world, I see those problems coming into our community. And so whether it is Black Lives Matter, whether we should say Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter, or whenever there are uh, conflicts between, you know, uh, in the Middle East, or you know, mm-hmm. uh, whenever the Olympics comes around, you know what I'm saying? I mean, we're in trouble at our church. So, <laughs> um, and so I'm faced with this sociologically, and so yeah. because there's often a lack of proximity to different people, uh, people write from their own enclaves yeah. and their own uh, homogeneous settings. I think that's one of the reasons why. Uh, racial reconciliation and racial justice often doesn't show up in spiritual formation books. So I think one is theological, the other is often sociological. Can we talk a little bit more about the sociological piece? How do we lovingly, graciously, but also directly speak into uh, the lives of those who sociologically would say, well, that's just not yeah. That's not my context. Yeah. I wrote an article and I would recommend people read it on Missio Alliance on, um, it was about white pastors or white church, predominantly white churches or white pastors uh, and how they can engage matters of race. 
because that's mm-hmm. often the issue, isn't it? Well, uh, my church is very homogeneous. We're in an area where it's predominantly white. How can we live out this this value? There, therefore, we're not going to prioritize it. And mm-hmm. in it, what I do is I lay out a number of ways for predominantly, you know, uh, monocultural, you know, white churches in particular to engage this issue. But number one, it's again, it's a fundamental a reimagining of what the gospel is. Uh, it's a fundamental mm-hmm. reimagining of who our neighbor is. And in a world, I mean, uh, Thomas Friedman, uh, I, I remember years ago, he wrote a, he wrote the book called The Lexus and the Olive Tree. And he talked about the democratization of technology and that everything, you know, we, every, the technology is so ubiquitous and available to us that we are so tightly connected now because of, uh, because of it. Mm-hmm. We're in a globalized village and so we don't have any, we, we, we don't have an excuse anymore to say, I don't know the plight of black and brown people. I don't know right. the plight of immigrants. I don't know the plight of people who are poor. I mean, we have access to it at the tips of our fingers. Mm-hmm. And so I think for people like that, it's a reimagining of the gospel. I think one of the ways to move forward is to assess who has shaped you theologically over the years. I have a lot of books in my living room and the vast majority of them because of my first few years as a Christian are white male theologians, pastors. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until a few years, maybe I'd say six, seven years after becoming a Christian that because I met some you know, black, brown professors and scholars who said, hey, you should broaden your library and maybe consider reading these people. I think uh, look at your library. Look at the last 10 books you read. Uh, how many of those books are written by white male authors? So what can we do? Well, we can begin to educate ourselves and allow ourselves to sit under the teaching of people who don't look like us. Uh, mm-hmm. We could partner with local churches in different parts of our areas, our region, and say, you know, God, if God has blessed your church with some resources, how can we serve churches that might be in an economically challenging or under-resourced and overlooked or depressed area. So I think there's certain things that, but it's a matter of just stepping out of our own comfort zone and not allowing your context to determine your theology. Mm. Not allowing your context to determine your theology. That's good. That's good. Absolutely. Do you think that the church's lack of engagement in areas of racial reconciliation, um, even acknowledging or participating in and, and building their leadership to recognize the systemic injustices of race around us? Like, do you think that's an impediment to the spread of the gospel, especially as we're looking at Western Christianity? Can, can, I, can I ask that a little, little differently? Sure. And, and the reason why I want to ask a little differently is because, I mean, it's obvious just by the gray in my goatee that I'm, I'm a little older than the two of you. Uh, I think, as I think of my own history, I think there has been, a, there's been conversation about racial reconciliation mm-hmm. um, that's gone on for a long time. What I, what, I've, what I struggle with is the lack of leaning into the hard conversations yeah. that need to happen. Can you speak to that? Yeah, the, the, I, I, in the book, I talk about my ambivalence in using the word reconciliation. 
and I use it because I think it's a, a good theological term, but I, I have to regularly name my ambivalence because reconciliation has often been reduced to foot washing ceremonies at a promise keepers event uh, mm-hmm. and um, or aesthetic diversity uh, or having different people on the platform. I, if I could say it this way, you know, true reconciliation is not about getting different, a diverse amount of people in the room, but it's about really allowing a diverse amount of people to share power. Mm-hmm. And um, you can get a lot of the people in the room and it's still the, you know, the person who holds the power is really shaping the environment, shaping the culture, shaping the ethos. How do we now share power in a way that transcends the racial ethnic categories that often are predetermined in our society? I think to talk about race, you know, the hard conversations are, and I, this is what I've discovered in my preaching, to talk about race responsibly means you need to talk about it at least on three levels, individually, interpersonally, and institutionally. Um, the individual piece, people like. The interpersonal piece, people can go with. The institutional piece, that's when, um, that's when people start sending emails. And uh, and I or inboxes, or inboxes. <laughs> and I remember. I, listen, as a past 2017, I never and I just had a conversation with some of our elders. We had a board meeting on uh, Tuesday, and I brought this up to say, "Do you guys remember in 2017 the 9 p.m. Monday night phone calls we were having because I said the phrase systemic sin, institutional racism, and white supremacy from the pulpit." And they said, oh, yeah, we remember. And uh, I had preached the week before on individual racial prejudice, that we all have some racial prejudice to us. And everyone was like, amen. You know, rich, rich, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. Everyone loved that sermon. And then the following week, I said, we're going to talk about the larger systemic institutional realities that we must be Mm -hmm. honest about. And at that point, people got very offended. And part of it was, you know, Michael Emerson, sociologist, out of Baylor. He's written a number of books. One of his great books with, with Christian Smith is uh, on Divided by Faith. Right. Uh, and he talks about the different ways that white people and people of color understand racism. And the, you can, I'm certainly generalizing, and he's certainly generalizing, but I think, and anecdotally, we would say this is true. And that is that for, for white people, they tend to, in, to view racism as, his phrasing, I believe, is like intended individual acts of overt prejudice. Mm -hmm. And that's what racism is. Intended individual acts of overt prejudice. Whereas people of color, I would say, often tend to understand racism as, you know, uh, prejudice plus power. Mm -hmm. And that it, it flows out of a larger institutional systemic reality in terms of how power is used to give advantages to some and disadvantages to others. To talk about that, that's a hard conversation, especially mm-hmm. in a society like our in our country where individualism, rampant individualism, uh, a disconnection from our story, our, our origin stories, our families, we, we, we want to separate ourselves from that. And because of that, we don't have enough of imagination to see the ways that we are so interconnected to one another. Uh, therefore, there is this, this uh, amnesia, and lots of folks can't even see history the same. Uh, mm-hmm. So 
I think those are the hard conversations, but they're necessary, you know, uh, because when, and it flows, Calvin Kim, it flows, I think, out of, for mm-hmm. Christians, right. a theology of sin. And mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a high theology right. of sin. Not that I appreciate it, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I just, just mean, just mean <laughs> I take it seriously. Uh, right. Reinhold Niebuhr wrote a book called Moral Man, Immoral Society. And the premise of his book was that human beings, generally speaking, are moral people. But when we get into groups and, uh, and when systems are created, there is this downward spiral that tends to gravitate towards immorality. As a parent, I understand this. Because, um, you know, if I was writing a book on parenting, it'd be like good kid, terrible children, you know, (laughs) because (laughs) because when kids get together, I mean, they start, I mean, they start causing all kinds of craziness. Um, Mm -hmm. But the, but for me, that's the nature of sin and how sin gets connected in groupthink and sin gets to, uh, you know, look at gang cultures, look at, I've met people and you have as well, that they're so nice but then they get with a group of friends and something comes mm-hmm. out of them. And it's like, how could that person say that when alone they would never say that? But in a group, there's a particular dynamic that's created where sin manifests in a different way. I think that's what happens in our society. So to not mm-hmm. to take the structural realities and systems and institutions and the ways that sin is manifested there seriously is really to uh, not take sin seriously. And as a Christian, I take mm-hmm. sin very seriously. Right. I'm reminded of um, the prayer of forgiveness that we we often pray in New Life, which I have the privilege and honor of attending. And there's a, a phrase in there that always gets me. And it's when we pray that God would forgive us for the things we've done and the things that we've left undone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when I think of these conversations and even the hard conversations that we're pressing into, there's one thing where we think of like, oh, if I just omit it. It's not primary. I can omit that. I can I can resist that because it's not part of my primary experience. But are we are we really impeding the the gospel by omitting entering into these hard conversations, dealing with the systemic injustices and racism? And and I think of in your book in missional presence and when you reference how Jesus died on the cross. And I love that you pulled out that the chief reason that he died on the cross was for justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. And so is there something that we're missing when you mentioned earlier, the gospel is not robust enough. The gospel that we're preaching is not robust enough to hold some of these systemic injustices and healing that we need. That's exactly right, Kim. And I think when we're talking about race, I think the two terms that we need to consistently define and redefine in various formational spaces are the terms gospel and racism. Mm-hmm. And um, because people come with all kinds of definitions mm-hmm. about what the gospel right. is and what racism is. And one of the best things, I'm, I'm, and I'm thinking about pastors right now uh, who are trying to lead faithfully their congregations into these matters. A, a big part of moving the conversation forward is doing our best to at least get everyone on the same page as it pertains to how we're looking to define terms in this congregation. Uh, now they can disagree with it, but the, it's the pastor's responsibility to say, when we talk about the gospel, this is what we're saying. And the gospel must be robust enough. And when we're talking about racism, this is what we're saying. And unless we can continually articulate, uh, with clarity, these definitions, people are going to be talking over one another. Because when I talk about racism, I'm thinking about one thing. When you're talking about it, you're thinking about another 
and the two shall never meet because we have never started at a place where we can say, this is what we mean about racism. This is what we're talking about the gospel. And because of that, it impedes for sure the mission of the church. As we talk about that, Kim, it reminds me of, um, you know, we just did, we just finished the district conference and um, talking about justice being uh, a work of the spirit, you know, and the work of justice is the work of the spirit uh, that reveals to us a just savior Mm. who cares about a just soul and a just society. Yeah. And so seeing the gospel holistically, being able to go after those things and, and understanding justice from that perspective is so key. But I'm glad you, I'm glad you, you, you brought up the point about, uh, you know, terminology yeah. and, you know, it, it, we have to have agreed upon working definitions mm-hmm. in order to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've, I, I mean, I know what it's like to throw out words without clearly defining them. And then people uh, hear it through a particular filter and it leads to all kinds of confusion. Uh, And there are times where I can be crystal clear. It's still going to lead to some kind of confusion depending on how people hear it. But my job is to do my best as the leader of a congregation to regularly define and redefine some of these important words, you know, for the sake of our discipleship and formation. Yeah. Have, do you see, though, in that process of defining, do you see that any any way in which we're hiding behind or we're not really diving into the significance of what some of the terms are, or sometimes we're looking to define so that it can fit within the context that we want it to fit within, rather than defining for the purpose of expanding beyond where we currently are? Say that one more time, Kim, in a different way. I, I think I'm tracking with you. Say it one more time. Are there times when we're trying to define terminology so that it limits it to fit within the perspective that we want to hear it within? Or do you see a reason for us to define terminology so that it expands us beyond the limitations we've put it within? Yeah, I I think everyone comes often with their predisposed ways of, of seeing things. And, you know, the goal is, I mean, for me as a pastor, as a Christian, the goal is to lead people into all truth. And... Um, and some of these words are so robust, these terms, I mean, it, it should take us forward at the same time. I recognize there's certain people for, so for, I'll give you one clear example. There are a few people at new life who the phrase white privilege just drives them nuts. And, uh, they're white people, you know, they, they just drive them nuts. And some have said to me over the years, the reason is because, I did not grow up with any economic social privileges in this world. So I have not benefited. And no matter how much I try to say, this does not mean that, this does not mean that people are going to come with their preconceived notes. And I have gone blue in the face until just to say, um, this is not what it means. This, and But people are going to carry whatever. And what's behind all that are wounds or trauma or... Uh, other things that need to be addressed that are, that are not going to be addressed cognitively, rationally. Right. It's going to have to be addressed right. in different ways. But uh, but that's the challenging work before us. And so I, I don't. I want to be clear in saying just because we define something clearly doesn't mean everything's going to be delightful and wonderful. Yeah. But at least yeah. we're um, moving a little closer to uh, a place where we can at least understand one another. Yeah, I think you know. I think it's a. I think that that's understood in 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 
when we're talking about, you know, one aspect of the gospel, salvation, you know, uh, we define it clearly. That doesn't mean that, you know, it's going to be received as, yeah. as wonderfully as we'd like, because, you know, uh, we often, we like to go to the place where, you know, we, well, the gospel is offensive. So obviously they're not, you know, people are not going to receive it. But in this area, when we're looking at the gospel holistically, mm-hmm. it, it just, you know, it's just like, no, we get the pushback yeah. because the terms should be neat yeah. and wonderful yeah. and, and make us feel comfortable, which is why I, I, I'm tracking with you when you say, you know, the, the ambivalence with the term, uh, the term racial reconciliation. I remember the first time I said something like that, I was like, I feel like I just said something wrong. Like <laughs> I should be, but you know, you you put it in 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 words that just perfectly describe what was internally. But I didn't know how to express. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so uh, I'm just I'm glad we're having Kelvin, this conversation. And, and there's lots of debate in turn. I mean, Mark Charles, uh, you know, Native American mm-hmm. author. He's been at mm-hmm. New Life, and he doesn't use the word reconciliation. He uses the word conciliation. Now, I disagree with Mark Charles. Uh, mm-hmm. because, uh, and when he uses it to, I, I think, to fairly represent him, he's using it talking about the United States and reconciliation as a sociological category, uh, mm-hmm. that there's never been a point where in this country where people have been reconciled. Uh, and so how can you reconcile something that's never been conciled in the first place? When mm-hmm. I, So, you know, I, I think he uses it as a sociological category, whereas I use it as a, as a theological category yeah, that yeah, yeah. humanity, for, you know, from the early pages in the book of Genesis, something has happened to humanity that has caused estrangement between us and God and us and one another. And reconciliation becomes that process of that reuniting, if you will. But some of these things need to be nuanced because yeah. the ways that these terms get hijacked by people and used in ways that right. then marginalize aspects of Christian life and formation and discipleship, like paying attention to matters of justice, it just becomes very difficult. So it just takes patience, though. I mean, that's what I've learned over the yeah. years. It takes a lot of patience <laughs> and prayer. <laughs> I really appreciated the definition from Brenda Salter McNeil that you included in the book. Um, Mm -hmm. I also had struggled a lot with the term of racial reconciliation, but hearing from her lens and that it was a restoring or reconciliation towards what God intended for humanity. And that theological perspective helped me a lot with that. Yeah. And it includes in her definition, you know, not not just individuals, but, you know, systems and institutions. Right. 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 With all of that, and and this conversation that we're having, your book, the work that New Life is doing, you know, it, it, it's clear that um, I'll say it this way: it's clear that for for this time and this season, uh, God is expanding your leadership platform. And as that leadership platform expands, what is also expanding or deepening <laughs> in your soul? Yeah. So that you lean into that and handle that. Yeah. You know, Pete, uh, my predecessor said on a number of occasions, you know, the, the higher you go in anything, the mm-hmm. more self-aware you need to become. He's mentioned that to me. The other thing he said to me is the higher you go, um, the less freedom you have. Um, mm. And in the sense of 
uh, I can't do all the things that I want to do. And that's just, is just true. I can't say all the things that there are times where I see people post things on Facebook and it's like so visceral. And so like, and I go, man, I wish I could say that on Facebook. <laughs> I say, maybe I should get a sec, a burner account or something like that and say all the things I want to say on Facebook. With, with- you find a way to say a lot though. <laughs> Kim, if you only knew what else was lurking in my soul. Don't worry. I'll, I'll talk to Rosie and find out. Rosie here's, Ro- you get the filtered version. Rosie gets the real version. Here she is. You can't say that. I go, oh, well, let me help me to temper it down a little bit here. Uh, so I, I recognize that the higher I go, the more self-aware I need to become. And the higher I go, um, the less freedom I have. And that's a that's a loss. That's a that's uh, that's something to grieve for me. And so uh, I, I do recognize that over the years I've had significant help around me. Um, and what I need to continue to press into is I need that and more. And by significant help, I mean I, I meet monthly with a leadership coach who's. He's not just, and he's more than just a coach. He's a confidant. He's someone who's helping me not just think about X's and O's and strategy, but how my soul is doing. I, I meet with a therapist seasonally. I meet with, uh, you know, I've had seasons of spiritual direction. Um, I have a, a peers that I meet with. I need all the help I can get. And I think if I'm, if I remain tethered to community and tethered to spaces where I can have honest conversations with people. I know uh, as my uh, notoriety increases, and that's what happens when you write books like this here, that pe- more people just start knowing who you are. And I recognize that, I, I t- you know, checking my own spirit of entitlement. You know, I wrote an article mm-hmm. two years ago and I posted it yesterday because of what happened with Carl Lentz and with uh, Hillsong. Uh, and what's all in the news. And, it, you know, and it was on Bill Hybels and what happened in Willow Creek. And I talked about celebrity cultures that, of churches. And someone asked me, do you have to be a mega church to have a celebrity culture? I said, absolutely not. Uh, mm-hmm. Your church can be a hundred people. And the pastor thinks she or he is a celebrity. And, and, right. they, they, and they demand that they, be get, they get treated with a certain type of entitlement. Uh, and so for me, I know I just have to be really mindful of a spirit of entitlement. I wrote in the article that when I came on staff at New Life, one of the first things Pete said in passing to me was, you know, congratulations, you can't use the parking lot anymore. And I thought, you're going to have to find parking on Queens Boulevard on Sundays because those those parking spots are reserved and they're limited amount of parking spots. You, I mean, mm-hmm. you guys have seen, there's not a lot of parking spaces, maybe 30 yeah. parking spots for a church of Fifteen to eighteen hundred people, and so uh, I thought, "What? You know, uh, I don't have a parking spot." And so, no lie, there have been times on some, when we were gathering together where, if I was running a little bit late, I would be circling, looking for parking. You know, and the worship started. I'm circling, looking for parking, and I'm not going to lie. Part of me would think. Who the heck set up this culture? It was, it was, you know, it was Pete. You know, it just said, "I'm like, I gotta." And what keeps me from changing it is this entitlement uh, that I deserve a parking spot. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. There's certain cu- church cultures that swing the pendulum where the pastor now becomes a punching bag, 
and right. the pastor's not cared for and the pastor's not served by the, the, the elders and, you know, all of that there. But I think the, the other swinging the pendulum the other way, I just know myself that the more um, notoriety I get, the easier it is for me to feel entitled. And I just have to be able to name that to myself before God and before friends to keep me grounded in whatever new season the Lord is bringing me into. One of my favorite practices of the book you mentioned just there, and, and I, it was a short one. It's one of the smallest ones, but it was the in the contemplative um, rhythm section, and it was the commitment to stability. And it's at the very end, and it's real short and small, but I, I reflected like that is the example that you have led in the way in which you have connected yourself with people, that you've stayed very committed to the practices. But can you just elaborate, like, even in just some final words here, what would be your charge or call to people as they go through this book? How would you ask them to to commit to this process, to this life um, that you're calling them to live in a deeply formed way? Yeah, the word stability, if there is any part in the book that I thought um, man, I wish I w- would have done more with it. It is that section of the commitment to stability. Another book, please, on that one. <laughs> Believe it or not, uh, that will most likely be in the second book because it, number Good. one, stability flows out of monasticism. And so mm-hmm. uh, monks take a vow of stability in a monastery. So they they say, we are going to stay rooted in this community for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. And... Um, when people become members at New Life, we use that language. Now, we don't say, hey, you, you can never move to Texas <laughs> if you find an, a house that costs $100,000 and has 21 rooms. You know, um, you can't do that, which, I mean, New York is so expensive, it's depressing. Um, yeah. but, um, uh, so, but I tell New Lifers, we are inviting you to have a commitment to stability. And what that means is it's more emotional than it is geographical. And what I mean by that is it's a commitment and a willingness to stay rooted in the midst of very difficult community life. I'm not talking about abusive community life. I'm not talking about Mm -hmm. dysfunctional community life. I'm talking about the ordinary ways and struggles of being in community with people who vote differently, who see things differently, Mm -hmm. who, who, who who have a different vision of what the world looks like to flourish. Uh, and so, yeah. uh, I'll just mention this, you know, there are three phases of stability where one be, you know, it's idealism, realism, and then real community. Idealism is mm-hmm. often, uh, we see everyone as angels and the church is heaven. And this is what, this is what often happens. People come to new life. They've been there for four minutes and they're like, wow, you guys are amazing. This is like heaven. I'm thinking you've been here for four minutes. Stay here <laughs> yeah. for a couple of months and you'll find out we have just as many issues as every other church. Uh, so it goes from idealism, then it goes to realism. And it's that realism where we're disappointed. We hear that people voted for that guy and we go, what? I'm not going to this church anymore. And we a reality hits So and people start moving from be, being angels, to becoming devils. And this place mm-hmm. goes from being heaven to being hell. And it's at that point where people leave. And this happens with relationships, doesn't it? Romantic relationships, jobs, and churches. And stability is basically saying we're not angels and we're not devils. This is neither heaven. This is neither hell. We're somewhere in between. And we're full of mixture. And stability says, I want to remain close to you 
and close to myself, especially in times of high anxiety. That stability then I think has worked out as well in our practices because stability is about being present, present to God, present to myself, present to my neighbor. That's stability. It's a willingness to stay rooted. And the practices that I offer, that I offer as, as are essentially that. Can you stay connected with God, connected to yourself and connected to your neighbor? Uh, that for me essentially is the deeply formed life. Wow. This has been, no pun intended, a rich time. <laughs> um, you know, as I was about to say that, I'm like, uh, but no, really, it has been. I, I have, um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a fast reader, nor am I a fast listener because I do a lot of audio books mm. too. But I took in your book in four days mm. and it felt like I couldn't, put it down and i and in my in my recommendation of a you know my review of it um i talked about what a gift this is to the church and i and i mean that if if we could embrace what's in this book if we could wrestle mm. with what's in this book because uh, uh the the word em, the word embrace makes it sound like it's, it's too easy it makes it sound like it's just a it's just a good book. Read it. You'll be fine. Yeah. No, what you what you put forth is something that is not only needed for us to wrestle with, but I think it's something that for the sake of the gospel is worthy of being wrestled with mm. so yeah. that uh, we, we live a holistic life. Mm. Um, and so I just want to say thank you for not only the gift you've given to the church, uh, the gift that you've given to me personally. But thank you for taking the time with all of the different places that you are from your prayer corner uh, mm-hmm. these days that you took time to be with us, not only at our district conference, but even here today so that we could flesh this out. Really appreciate you, brother. Absolutely. Well, love you guys. Uh, like I said, uh, I've had many of these podcasts, interviews with people who uh, <laughs> I don't know. So just to be with some friends um, is a joy to me. So thanks for the invitation. It was a pleasure to have you. A lot of fun. And thinking of what Kelvin mentioned, I read this book so slowly because I had to get a journal out and just write and process and ask questions as God was bringing things up and highlighting what you were saying. So my encouragement to listeners would be to take time and and, and hold a journal with it and ask yourself the questions. Um, that riches is presenting to us in these practices. And I just so thank you so much. Thank you, Kim. And I'll just say one thing, uh, you know, the book is, uh, you know, available where all stores are, uh, where all books are sold, but there is a, uh, all stores are books, you know, all books. are. Sold. <laughs> <laughs> there is, uh, I'm, I put together a, a discussion guide as well. Cause a lot of folks have yeah. been asking me, Hey, I want to lead my small group through it, my elders. Uh, so I put together a discussion guide. Uh, that should be available. We're in, uh, you know, almost mid-November here. So it should be available within a couple of days on richvelotus.com. So if folks want, there's a, a small cost for to access all 10 chapters of uh, discussion guides. So um, I think it, it's I think it was done really well. And I think it can be a really helpful aid for folks to process and wrestle with the content. Good. Good. Absolutely. It's worth worth reading them together, the study guide and the book. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Rich. It was great to have you with us and we look forward to seeing you around the city. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Take care.